Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha going through this 13-volume book series, starting with volume 2, moving all the way to volume 13. Today, we're finishing up volume 11, studying chapters 141 to chapters 148. So there's eight individual chapters that we're going to read in class. I'll share teachings on them and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. Some students who join regularly might have actually read some of these chapters or all of these chapters before class so that then when you come to class, you actually have questions that you might have related to the teachings of the Buddha because in order to get to enlightenment, this is an independent journey. A teacher can't give you enlightenment or just showing up to class is wonderful, but if that's all you ever did, you wouldn't actually get to enlightenment. You need to do the work to investigate the teachings, to meditate, to practice in daily life and all these types of things. So you can actually download these books by going to buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, you'll see the link for free books. And you can download all the volumes that are there. All 13 volumes are there. And as I mentioned, we're finishing up volume 11 today. And then next week, we'll be in volume 12. So if you would like to start joining the program regularly, you can download those books or you can print it or you can order it off on Amazon. And you can read the first 10 chapters of volume 12, which will help prepare you for next week's class. And if at any point you aren't able to read the chapters, then you can still come to class because we read the chapter in terms of the words of the Buddha in class. But there's descriptions and teachings that I've shared in addition to what the Buddha is sharing to help you better understand and kind of reflect on what the Buddha is teaching from the perspective of a dedicated practitioner and dedicated teacher. So I share some of those things in classes with you guys, but I'm not able to share all of it. So that's why it's really helpful to read the book and allow you to digest the content. And I just suggest maybe like one or two chapters a day. And the chapters, we call them chapters, but some of them are only like a half a page or a page long. So they're not very long, but it is content that you'll need in order to gradually progress to enlightenment. So welcome to all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly. The way that we start out our class is we start with a meditation, just a brief meditation to kind of prepare the mind for the class ahead and to be able to learn and focus on the class. So by doing breathing mindfulness meditation, it helps to clear out the mind and allows you to focus and retain the teachings for a longer period of time, which then allows you to apply them in your daily life 
by having retained them in the mind, now you can go into your daily life and start applying these teachings, and that's where you actually will see the real benefits. So I'd like to invite you to join us for meditation. If you'd like to take a seated, lying, or standing position, these are all good for teaching online. And what you would like to do if you're in the seated position is just make your lower body and your hands and arms comfortable so that there's no muscles engaged. The Buddha put his right hand over his left with his thumbs together and then put that into his lap. So you can use that if you'd like. Some people like to put their palms on their thighs or their knees. Some people like to put their palms up. If you're in a chair with an armrest, you might even just place your arms on the armrest so that your lower body and the hands and arms are completely relaxed during the meditation. The upper body should be erect. This helps to keep the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. You're not interested in being real rigid, but not real slouched either. So just kind of in the middle where it's erect to keep the mind attentive and alert because you would like to have a dedicated, active, purposeful training session of the mind. Next, you just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here, you're just establishing the breath. You're just gradually breathing in, developing a nice, natural, steady, consistent breath. And you're also breathing out through the nose. You can sit here and just focus on establishing the breath. I'm gonna do some chanting. You're welcome to join along with the chants if you know these. And then after the chanting, I'll come back in with a little bit of light guidance just to help you in your meditation practice. Samasamoto 
विचाचरण सामुनो सखातो रोकावितु अनुतेरो पुरीसा नमासाति सातावा मनुष्णं भूतो पाकवाति Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you should just be developing a nice, natural, steady, consistent breath. Breathing in through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And exhaling through the nose. This is your practice, so your breath may not match to the guidance that I'm providing. But wherever you get to the next inhale, just breathe in gradually through the nose. And exhale through the nose. Next, focus the mind on the breath. The sound of the breath or the sensation of air coming into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. And out. With the mind fixated on the breath, anytime you observe that the mind is off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to analyze the thought, judge it, observe it, or label it in any way. Just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath. Breathing in and out.
Now we can transition over to the part of our class where we read each chapter one by one, and then I actually share the teachings on that particular chapter, and then open up to any questions that you guys might have related to the chapter. The moderator today is Miranda and Rick, who have organized for students to be able to read each chapter. As we go, if you have questions, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom through the comment section and the moderators will see that. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll turn things over to all of you guys. Yes, sir, thank you. I will read chapter 141. Remember me, Brahman, as awake, a Buddha. Could you be a heavenly being, sir? I will not be a heavenly being, Brahman. Could you be a Gandhava, sir? I will not be a Gandhava Brahmin. Could you be a Yaka, sir? I will not be a Yaka Brahmin. Could you be a human being, sir? I will not be a human being Brahmin. What then could you be, sir? Brahmin, I have abandoned those taints, fetters, because of which I might have become a heavenly being. I have cut them off at the root. 
made them like palm stumps, obliterated them so they are no longer subject to future arising. I have abandoned those taints because of which I might have become a Gandhava, might have become a Yaka, might have become a human being. I have cut them off at the root, made them like palm stumps, obliterated them so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Just as a blue, red, or white lotus flower, though born in the water and grown up in the water, rises above the water and stands unsoiled by the water. Even so, though the world, though born in the world and grown up in the world, I have overcome the world and reside unsoiled by the world. Remember me, Brahman, as awake, a Buddha. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha has a Brahmin who's asking him some questions. Apparently the way that I read this from my recollection is the Buddha is just kind of like hanging out somewhere and a Brahmin kind of walks by and a Brahmin is a Hindu priest during the lifetime of the Buddha. They were very popular amongst the local community that people would go to Brahmin priest, pay money, ask them to pray on their behalf and then they would go home and expecting that their life would become better. And here comes the Buddha sharing teachings that help people understand to take responsibility and accountability for their wisdom and the the lack thereof and making wise decisions about our intentions, our speech and our actions. And this is what brings about real improvement in our life and also in the condition of the mind. So what he had to share was very revolutionary for that time frame. And even today, there's not very many people who are willing to take responsibility for their actions and their conduct. So the Brahmin is asking to the Buddha because there's no outward signs of what a Buddha is or for someone to know that he is a Buddha. He's just like every other person in that region of the world that might be on this journey to understand life. And the Buddha knows that he's enlightened. The Buddha knows he's a Buddha. The Buddha knows he's awake. But other people don't necessarily know that. So as the Brahmin walks by, he's inquisitively asking the Buddha, like, you know, could you be a heavenly being? And could you be these other beings? You know, could you be a human being? And the Buddha replies, no, I will not be a human being. Here, it's interesting to note, depending on what translation you read, people have come away from this particular discourse thinking that the Buddha is saying that he is not a human being, which isn't true. Here in this translation, you can see what he's actually saying, which is, I will not be a human being, meaning he will not be reborn. And he also saying he won't be a heavenly being or any of these other beings as well. So he's not saying at that existence that he wasn't a human being. This is where sometimes people think he was a god or something like this, but he was indeed a human being. He was born through the womb of a human being, of a woman. And beings that are born of human beings are a human being. So he was a human being, but once he attained enlightenment, he will no longer be a human being ever again. And that's what he's sharing here in this teaching. And by the time that he gets into more of the conversation, he shares that he's abandoned the taints, which are the 10 fetters. What a taint is, is a pollution of mind. And the Buddha describes 10 individual pollutions that are causing the mind to be in the unenlightened state. And these taints or pollutions or fetters, they're like a ball and chain that keep you trapped in the unenlightened state and keep you trapped in the cycle of rebirth. So eliminating the fetters or abandoning them, as the Buddha describes here, would mean that he's enlightened and that he's no longer coming back 
to be a heavenly being or human being or any of these other beings. He's saying that he's destroyed them. He's cut them off at the root. He's obliterated them. They're no longer subject to future arising. Because once you eliminate and abandon the fetters or these taints, these pollutions of mind, they will never arise in the mind again. You've obliterated them or destroyed them from the mind and they will never arise again to cause discontentedness. That's what the Buddha is explaining here is that he's obliterated the pollutions of mind. They are no longer subject to future arising because you can actually be working with a particular craving or a particular fetter and you can feel like, aha, I got that pretty well taken care of and you might actually think it's gone. And then, you know, six months later, boom, here it comes. It arises again. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? I thought that was long gone. But here it comes. It comes and arises in the mind. And you got to get back on that and you got to start working to eliminate it. So it's not that it was eliminated and then it came back. It was never eliminated to begin with. It just was kind of dormant and kind of buried in the mind. And then it came and arose. But what the Buddha is saying is for him and for all other enlightened beings too, these fetters or these taints or pollutions of mind are so well eliminated that they're obliterated and they will no longer arise again in the future. That's what it means to really eliminate and abandon a fetter. If it's just dormant, it hasn't been eliminated yet. So it's not until you observe the mind as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy for about one, two, three years that you'll know, aha, uh -huh, all the fetters have been eliminated because the mind is so peaceful that you can observe that there's no more anger or sadness or hostility or irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all these discontent feelings and others are completely eliminated from the mind. So he says that he no longer is going to take another rebirth is what he's sharing. And then he compares his life to that of a lotus flower, which is actually very common imagery or symbolism that we use in Buddhist culture is comparing a lotus flower to enlightenment. That when you see a closed lotus flower, this is teaching you and reminding you of your potential to become enlightened because a bloomed lotus flower is a signification of enlightenment. So oftentimes when you see artwork, they will have a bloomed lotus flower and the Buddha will be kind of sitting on this big lotus flower. Or if you see a statue or, or you'll see lotus flowers around the Buddha in artwork. And what he's explaining here is that he's risen above the soil, right? That the this dirty water that lotus flowers tend to grow in. If there's a pond and there's all these lotus flowers blooming, they have to go from the roots down deep into holding onto the earth and in the dirty water. And they have to grow this strong stalk. And this stalk grows up through this dirty water. The bud of the lotus flower is budding and then eventually it blooms. And this is what happens through enlightenment is that the world has so many things. There's killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. There's lying. There's substances that cause heedlessness and a whole host of other unwise and unwholesome decisions that we can make. But through learning the wisdom of the Buddha and realizing the impact that it's having to your mind and the clarity and the focus and the concentration that you're gaining, the deep memory that you're gaining is part of moving the mind closer and closer to enlightenment and training the mind. You get to a point where you're just not interested in those things whatsoever. And even though the water or the world is very murky and dirty, 
you're choosing to build this strong practice, like the stalk of a lotus flower ascending through the murky water and then blooming where the mind then kind of comes into its own. And there's this radiance and this brightness of the enlightened mind where it's just permanently peaceful and joyful, never experiencing any discontent feelings whatsoever. So he shares with the Buddha, remember me, Brahmin. He shares with the Brahmin, you know, remember me, Brahmin, as awake, essentially as a Buddha. Some people translate this as awake, as remember me, Brahmin, as a Buddha, right? What a Buddha is, is someone who's awoke to enlightenment on their own without the assistance of any teachers or any guides. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings and countless beings during the rest of their life will get to enlightenment through that individual's independently discovered teachings. Because they attain enlightenment on their own and they have such profound wisdom, they can guide countless people to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they will leave their teachings in such a condition that countless more people after their death will get to enlightenment. Those are the three criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha, is that they awaken to enlightenment on their own without the assistance of any teachers. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings and help countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then the third criteria is that they leave their teachings in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment after death. This is very rare for a Buddha to arise in the world. You can actually get to enlightenment, but you won't be an actual Buddha and what the, a Buddha is able to bring to the world. So one of the things that we do nowadays is if you're enlightened, that we don't share with people that we are enlightened. Or if a Buddha arose today, they wouldn't go around telling everyone that they were a Buddha. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, people didn't know what a Buddha was. You know, he was essentially bringing teachings into the world for the first time that people in that part of the world, they just didn't understand what the teachings are. They didn't understand what a Buddha was. So he declared that he was a Buddha. He declared that he's the perfectly enlightened one so that people would understand what that is. And now, since that wisdom has been brought into the world 2,500 years ago, we don't need to tell people that we're enlightened or that we're a Buddha. If somebody actually arises today that's a Buddha, they're not going to go around telling everyone that they're a Buddha because right away, if someone's saying they're enlightened and someone's saying they're a Buddha, we would look at that as arrogance or ego. And that would determine that that person isn't enlightened and they aren't a Buddha. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, when he was teaching, he never understood that he was going to be as famous as he is now because a Buddha isn't interested in fame. They're not interested in fortune. All he was interested in was sharing his teachings with others to help them get to enlightenment. So by him saying that he was a Buddha at that lifetime, it wasn't trying to elevate himself on the world stage because there really wasn't a world stage at that point in time. Nowadays, if somebody said they were a Buddha, it would be like, whoa, you know, this is like pretty deep. You know, this person must have a lot of arrogance or a lot of ego. So today, when someone gets to enlightenment, they just humbly live their life with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, no longer experiencing any discontentedness. They don't have to go around and convince people that they're enlightened in order to get admiration because 
if they're craving or desiring admiration from others, then the mind's not enlightened yet. So an enlightened being's mind should be so peaceful and so joyful, and there shouldn't be any ego or conceits or anything like this. So they should be able to just humbly go about their life, and they're already practicing in such a way that they are able to build very healthy personal and professional relationships with anybody around them who's interested in having that type of relationship. So let's see what questions you guys might have on this chapter. Again, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand and Zoom and ask your question directly. Yes, sir. As we are abandoning these taints and getting rid of all these craving, desire, and attachments, when we are thinking that we may have eliminated them and then they come back, is it possible that they come back as maybe less intense, less noticeable. And this is when it's very important to be full of, have mindfulness, awareness of the state of the mind so that we notice these arising even when they're very subdued, sir? It does happen that way where they come back less subdued and not as noticeable. This is what's nice about having a teacher or having community members and our community of practitioners that you have confidence in and you have trust in that you're willing to seek guidance and advice from others like your teacher because then when you don't see it and it is more subtle, somebody can help you with that. But we should only do those kind of things if we know that somebody is open to our guidance and interested in seeking help essentially the way that these teachings are shared is when students ask for guidance then guidance is given but when there's a relationship between a student and a teacher a teacher might proactively share something with a student that they see that the student is challenged with but the student might not necessarily see it themselves so yes they can be more diminished when they come back but they can also be more intense than what you might have remembered when they went away because when they were kind of going dormant, it was like, ah, it kind of goes down to, you know, feeling like what is nothing. And then it kind of can go dormant for a period of time. I've even had these go as much as six months and then boom, here it comes again. Like, whoa, I thought that was completely gone. Oh, that's too strong. Why did that happen? Like, okay, let me get on top of that. So even though in some situations it can be more muted in other situations, it can be stronger than what you remember as well. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is 142. Yes, sir. Let's go to Rick to read chapter 142, please. Thank you, ma'am. The eight kinds of assemblies. Ananda, these eight kinds of assemblies, what are they? They are the assembly of the Katyas, the assembly of Brahmins, the assembly of householders, the assembly of ascetics, the assembly of heavenly beings of the realm of the four great kings, the assembly of the 33 gods, the assembly of Maras, the assembly of Brahmas, also known as God. I remember, or Brahma, yes. I remember well, Ananda, many hundreds of assemblies of Katyas, Brahmins, householders, aesthetics, heavenly beings of the realm of the four great kings, the 33 gods of Maras, of Brahmas that I have attended. And before I sat down with them, spoke to them or joined in their conversation, I adopted their appearance and speech, whatever it might be. And I instructed, inspired, uh, 
fired and delighted them with a discourse on the teachings. And as I spoke with them, they did not know me and wondered, who is it that speaks like this, a heavenly being or a man? And having thus instructed them, I disappeared, and still they did not know. He who has just disappeared, was he a heavenly being or a man? Okay, so here, you know, this particular chapter, it's not really giving you anything that you can go out and practice and you know, get to enlightenment in terms of like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the meditation, you know, there's these teachings that can really help you to ascend to enlightenment. Here, essentially, we're just getting some insight into Gautama Buddha's life and what he was doing and that he was teaching all these different groups of people. The assembly of Katyas, these are individuals who lived during the lifetime of the Buddha who were really well off, they were prosperous, they were known to be very polite, very well established. Their community was really thriving. And the Buddha kind of admired them and talked about how they can sustain their community through learning and practicing the teachings and different things that they can do in terms of things that they're already doing, like respecting their elders, you know, kind of learning wisdom from each other and things that he talks about in different parts of his teachings. He talks about the katyas in a very fond way and kind of admiring their prosperity and the way that they thrive because they're practicing certain aspects of the natural laws of existence and these teachings. And even though they might not understand the Buddhist teachings very directly, they at least know something about the natural law of gamma as they're thriving in their community. And then he talks about the assembly of Brahmin. These are the Hindu priests who also learn from him. Of course, the household practitioners, the aesthetics, which are ordained practitioners, the heavenly beings during a lifetime of a Buddha, a Buddha will also teach heavenly beings. And then it was also discussed during the lifetime of the Buddha that he was a teacher of gods. And here you see the assembly of 33 gods. They had belief in multiple gods during the lifetime of the Buddha. The assembly of Maras. Mara is like this evil, unwholesome being who is interested in causing calamity and, and destruction in the world. Essentially, the way that the Buddha typically talks about Mara is just one Mara. But here it sounds like maybe he's talking about Mara and then kind of Mara's helpers is kind of, you know, like the hell beings, essentially. Mara is the being that kind of is part of that realm. And then the assembly of Brahmas. So Brahmin are the Brahmin priests who are teaching people to worship Hindu gods. Brahmas or Brahma is actually God. And there's these different gods. So just like in English, we refer to God as God. In Arabic, they refer to God as Allah. During the lifetime of the Buddha, they refer to God as Brahma. So that's what he's describing here, that he's approaching these assemblies and sharing and instructing them. And as he did, they didn't understand whether he was a heavenly being or a man. And he basically left from that place. So there's nothing really here that's going to allow you to practice right speech, for example. But it's giving you some insight into the life of a Buddha. What questions do you guys have here? Yes, sir. Where this says, I adopted their appearance and speech, does this mean that Gautama Buddha could change his appearance and speak in whatever language he needed to speak in? And would all Buddhas have the same ability, sir? I'm not sure that he had the ability to, you know, change his appearance in terms of like if his hair was 
you know, black, he could change it to blonde or something like that. I don't think he had that ability because a, a Buddha is just a human being like everyone else. And, uh, you know, could he adopt their way of being and their mannerisms and their, their way of speech? This can be helpful when you're in a certain setting, as long as it's wholesome, right? Because if you're in a culture and there's a particular culture that does things a certain way, it's actually helpful to kind of adopt some of their culture and their mannerisms. Like if I went around Thailand and I didn't why people the way that I do, not that Thai people would judge me or anything like that, but I just wouldn't have as much integration with the Thai community and as seamless as a way of existing here as me adopting their culture and understanding that whying is a respectful thing to do and this is a greeting in Thailand. So a Buddha is going to be able to observe certain things about a certain community of people. That's what it means by assembly. A certain community of people, their culture, the way they interact, and they're going to be able to know that, oh, this is a wholesome thing and you know I will adopt this and I will kind of assimilate this while I'm associating with these people as a way to help them feel more comfortable and that Maybe I'm a part of this community and then they'll be more uh, willing and more interested to uh, learn the teachings. But if there's something that the Buddha observes or a Buddha observes about a culture that is unwholesome, they're not going to practice that because it would be unwise to do so. But they can obviously observe the natural law of gamma really well and see certain things that are going on in cultures and societies and be like, oh, that's really wise you know i can adopt that while i'm here with these folks and they'll feel more comfortable and they'll be more interested to learn the teachings and as they choose to ask questions then you might choose to share those teachings as a as a buddha or even as just a teacher going into a certain community that's something that can be done as a way of kind of assimilating into the community a bit better and being more well received and more accepted in that community Yes, thank you, sir. It does not appear we have any other questions at this time, sir. All right. This is chapter 143. Uh, before somebody reads it, I would like to just mention to you what we're going to be reading because it's quite long. Uh, what this is, is this is a depiction describing from the Buddha's own words what his appearance is like and certain th qualities that he had acquired, these 32 marks of what he acquired and he actually talks about different lives that helped him and what he practiced in order to acquire these and it's really helpful to read this not because it's going to tell you what another buddha looks like because every buddha is going to look different and there's no outward characteristic that's going to tell you exactly what a buddha looks like but instead as whoever reads through this and we're all listening you can pick up on certain mental qualities and certain practices that the Buddha shares that he did in order to practice and actually get to becoming a Buddha. So if you hear him talking about honoring his parents or you hear him you know, talking about other aspects of his life, maybe practicing generosity or being a thoughtful in his speech or something like this, this is what you should be looking for in a discourse like this is not because we're ever going to see this being Gautama Buddha ever again or one that looks just like him, but instead, as he describes the various characteristics and qualities of his practice in this life and previous lives that he lived prior, then you can understand those and then 
choose to incorporate those into your life practice? Uh, yes, sir. I will read the first half of this, and then uh, Rick is going to read the second half. <clears throat> the marks of a great man, 32 marks of a Buddha. And wise teachers of other communities know these 32 marks, but they do not know the karmic reasons for the gaining of them. A. Monks, in whatever former life, former existence, or dwelling place, the Tathagata, being born a human being, undertook mighty deeds to wholesome purpose, unwavering in wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind, in generosity, self-discipline, observance of the fast day, in honoring parents, ascetics, and Brahmins, and the head of the clan, and in other highly meritorious acts. By performing that wholesome kama, keeping it up lavishly and abundantly at the breaking up of the body after death, he was reborn in a happy state in a heavenly world where he was endowed beyond other heavenly beings in 10 respects, in length of heavenly life, beauty, happiness, splendor, influence, and in heavenly sights, sounds, smells, flavors, and contacts. Falling away from there and coming to be reborn here on earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. One, feet with level tread, so that he places his foot evenly on the ground, lifts it evenly, and touches the ground evenly with the entire soul. Being endowed with this mark, he cannot be impeded by any enemy or adversary from within or without, from craving, anger, or ignorance, nor by any ascetic or Brahmin, any heavenly being, Mara or Brahma, or any being in the world. B, monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata, being born a human being, lived for the happiness of the many as a dispeller of fright and terror, provider of lawful protection and shelter, and supplying all necessities. By performing that kama, was reborn in a happy state, a heavenly world. Falling away from there and coming to be reborn here on earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. Two, on the soles of his feet are wheels of a thousand spokes, complete with an outer wheel and hub. Being endowed with this mark, he has a large community. He is surrounded by male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asuras, nagas, and gandhavas. C, monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata, being born a human being, rejected the taking of life and abstaining from it and laying aside stick and sword, resided kind and compassionate, having friendship and compassion for all living beings. By performing that kama, was reborn in a happy state, falling away from there and coming to be reborn on earth, he acquired these three marks of the great man, three, projecting heels, four, long fingers and toes, and 15, five, an excellently straight body. Being endowed with these marks, he is long lived, long enduring, attaining a great age, no foe, whether an ascetic or Brahmin, a heavenly being, Mara or Brahma, or anyone in the world can possibly take his life. D, monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata became a donor of fine food, delicious and tasty, hard and soft, and of drinks. By performing that, um, that wholesome kama, he was reborn in a heavenly world, falling away from there and being reborn here on earth. He acquired the, this mark of the great man. 
16, the seven convex surfaces on both hands, both feet, both shoulders, and his trunk. Being endowed with this mark, he receives fine food and drinks. E, monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata made himself beloved through the four bases of compassion, generosity, pleasing speech, beneficial conduct, and impartiality. On returning to this earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, five, soft and tender hands and feet, and six, net-like hands and feet. Being endowed with these two marks, all his students are well disposed to him, male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asuras, nagas, and gandhavas. F, monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata became a speaker to the people about their welfare, about teachings, explaining this to people, and being a bearer of welfare and peacefulness to beings, a dispenser of teachings. Returning to this earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, seven, high raised ankles, and 14, upward growing body hairs. Being endowed with these marks, as a Buddha, he became, becomes the chief, foremost, highest, supreme among all beings. G, monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata became a skilled advocate of a craft, a science, a way of conduct or action, thinking, what can I learn quickly and acquire, quickly practice without undue weariness? On returning to earth, he acquires this mark of the great man, eight, legs like an antelope's. Being endowed with this mark, as a ruler, he quickly acquires whatever things are fitting for a ruler. The things that pertain to a ruler delight him and are appropriate to him, as a Buddha likewise. Monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata approached an ascetic or Brahmin and asked, Sir, what is the wholesome? What is the unwholesome? What is blameworthy? What is not? What course is to be followed? What is not? What, if I do it, will be to my lasting sorrow and harm? What to my lasting peacefulness? On returning to this earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. 12, his skin is so delicate and smooth that no dust can adhere to his body. Being endowed with this mark, he will have great wisdom, extensive wisdom, joyous wisdom, swift wisdom, penetrative wisdom, discerning wisdom, and among all beings, there will be none equal to him or wholesome to him in wisdom. Uh, can I pass this over to you, Rick? I think this is about halfway through. Yes, thank you, Dan. Monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata lived without anger, perfectly unruffled, and even after many words had been spoken, was not abusive or agitated or wrathful or aggressive, displaying neither anger nor hatred nor resentment, but was in the habit of giving away fine, soft rugs, cloaks, fine linen, cotton, silk, and woolen stuffs, on returning to this earth, he required this mark of the great man. 11. A bright complexion, the color of gold, being endowed with this mark, he will receive such fine stuffs. J. Monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata reunited those long lost with relatives, friends and companions who had missed them, reunited mother and child, and child with mother, father with child, and child with father, brother with brother, brother with sister, and sister with brother, making them one again with great rejoicing. 
On returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. 10. His male organs are enclosed in a sheath. Being endowed with this mark, he will have numerous sons, disciples, more than sons or disciples, more than a thousand sons, powerfully built heroes, crushers of the enemy host. K. Monks, in whatever former life, the Tathakata, considering the welfare of people, knew the nature of each, knew each one himself, and knew how each one differed. This one deserves such and such, that one deserves so and so. So he distinguishes them. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man. 19. His proportions like a banyan tree. And 9. Standing without bending, he can touch and rub his knees with both hands. Being endowed with these marks, he will be wealthy and rich, and these will be his treasures. Confidence, morality, moral wrongdoing, moral concern, learning, generosity, and wisdom. L. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathakata interested in the welfare of the many, their advantage, comfort, freedom from bondage, thinking how they might increase in confidence, morality, learning, generosity, in teachings, in wisdom, in wealth and possessions, in two-legged animals and four-legged animals, in wives and children, in servants, workers and helpers, in relatives, friends and acquaintances. On returning to earth, he acquired these three marks of the great man. The front part of his body is like a lion's. There is no hollow between his shoulders and his bust is evenly rounded. Being endowed with these marks, he cannot lose anything. Confidence, morality, learning, generosity, or wisdom, losing nothing, he will succeed in all things. M. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathakata was one who avoided harming beings by hands, by stones, sticks, or sword. On returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. He has a perfect sense of taste. Whatever he touches with the tip of his tongue, he tastes in his throat, and the taste is dispersed everywhere. Being endowed with this mark, he will suffer little distress or sickness. Digestion will be good, being neither too cold nor too hot. As a Buddha likewise, he is also equable and tolerant of struggle. And monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata was accustomed to look at people not with an attitude of suspicion or disapproval, indirectly or secretively, but directly, openly, and straightforwardly, and with a kindly glance on returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, deep blue eyes and eyelashes like the cows. Being endowed with these marks, he will be looked upon with love by the common people. He will be popular with and loved by male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asuras, nagas, and grantavas. Oh, monks, in whatever former life Tathakata became the foremost in skilled behavior, a leader in right action of body, speech, and mind, in generosity, virtuous conduct, observance of fasts, 
in honoring father and mother, aesthetics and Brahmins, and the head of the clan, and in various other proper activities. On returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great man, a head like a royal turban. Being endowed with this mark, he will receive the loyalty of male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asuras, nagas, and grandhavas. P. Monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata, rejecting false speech, put away lies and became a truth speaker, wedded to the truth, reliable, consistent, not deceiving the world. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man. His body, separate, one to each poor, and the hair between his brows, white and soft, like cotton down. Being endowed with these marks, he will be obeyed by male and female ordained practitioners, household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asuras, nagas, and grandhavas. Q. Monks, in whatever former life, the, 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 sorry, the Tathakata, rejecting slander, abstain from it, not repeating there what he had heard there, what he had heard here to the detriment of these, or repeating what he had heard here to the detriment of those. Thus he was a reconcealer of those at variance and an encourager of those at one, rejoicing in peace, loving it, delighting in it. One who spoke up for peace, on returning to earth he acquired these two marks of the great man, forty teeth and no spaces between the teeth. Being endowed with these marks, his followers, male and female, ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asuras, nagas, and grantalas, will not be divided among themselves. R. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, rejecting harsh speech, abstained from it, spoke what was blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, courteous, pleasing and attracted to the multitude, many people, on returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man. His tongue was very long, and he had a Brahma-like or God-like voice, like a Karavika bird. Being endowed with these marks, he will have a persuasive voice. All his students, male and female, ordained practitioners and household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asuras, nagas and grantavas, will take his words to heart. S. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, rejecting idle chatter, spoke at the right time and was correct into the point of, te of teachings and discipline and what was bound with the prophet, on returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great jaws like a lion's. Being endowed with this mark, he cannot be overcome by any foe or hostile thing from within or without by craving, anger, or ignorance, by any ascetic or Brahmin, heavenly being, Mara, Brahma, or anything in the world. T. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, rejecting wrong livelihood, lived by right livelihood, refraining from cheating with false weights and measures, from bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity, from wounding, killing, imprisoning, lightweight robbery, and taking goods by force. On returning to earth, 
he acquired these two marks of the great man, even teeth and very bright canine teeth. Being endowed with these marks as a Buddha, his students, male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, Asuras, Nagas, and Granhalas will be pure. All right. Thank you, Miranda and Rick. So as I mentioned here, these are a bunch of qualities that you can just understand and then aspire to be able to practice them. What you might have noticed is that the numbering of the 32 marks, it's not in order, you know, from one to 32. And this is because there's another part of the Buddhist teachings where he lists out the 32 marks and they're listed one through 32. But then here he's kind of putting them in to describing what actually led to these marks. So when he's describing them, it's not that number one and two is created by this and number three and four is created by this. So the ordering and the numbering here is based on that other listing of the 32 marks, but he's describing now like, you know, maybe four and 14 are because of this one particular thing and five and 22 are because of this one particular thing. So that's why you're seeing the numbering, which is not consistent throughout this particular discourse, because it's given as a list in another discourse. Here, he's just describing what they are and what it took in order for him to be able to acquire these certain qualities. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, does not appear we have any questions about this at this time, sir. Okay. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is 144. Uh, yes, sir. I had Rick to read 144. Can you read that, Rick, or would you prefer I read that one since you just read? Uh, one second, please. Just one, 143. I'll be happy to read 144. Okay, thank you, sir. Benefits for one's confidence in the Tathagata. A thousand times the world in which the sun and moon revolve and light up the quarters with their brightness is called a thousandfold minor world system. In that thousandfold world system, there are a thousand moons, a thousand suns, a thousand Sinaras, king of mountains, a thousand Jampudipas, a thousand Aparagoyanas, a thousand Yultarakuros, a thousand Pubavidehas, and a thousand four great oceans, a thousand four great kings, a thousand heavens of heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings, a thousand Tavati Timsa or heavens, a thousand Yama heavens, a thousand Tusita heavens, a thousand heavens of heavenly beings who excite in creation, a thousand heavens of heavenly beings who control what is created by others, a thousand Brahma worlds. A world that is a thousand times a thousandfold minor world system is called a thousand to the second power middling world system. A world that is a thousand times a thousand to the second power middling world system is called a thousand to the third power great world system. Ananda, the Tathagata, the Tathagata can convey his voice as far as he wants in a thousand to the third power great world system. But in what way, venerable sir, can the Tathagata convey his voice as far as he wants in a thousand to the third power great world system? Here, Ananda, 
The Tathagata fills with his radiance a thousand to the third power great world system. When those beings perceive that light, then the Tathagata projects his voice and makes them hear its sound. It is in such a way, Ananda, that the Tathagata convey his voice as far as he wants in a thousand to the third power great world system. When this was said, the Venerable Ananda said to the perfectly enlightened one, it is my good fortune. I am very fortunate that my teacher is so powerful and mighty. When this was said, the Venerable Yudaya said to the Venerable Ananda, what is it to you, friend Ananda, that your teacher is so powerful and mighty? When this was said, the perfectly enlightened one said to the Venerable Yudai, do not say so, Yudai. Do not say so, Yudai. Yudai, if Ananda were to die without being free of craving, then because of his confidence, he would exercise heavenly kingship among the heavenly beings seven times and great kingship in the Jipit Jumbodipa, one of the greatest continents, seven times. However, in this very life, Ananda will attain final Nibbana, which means final enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Rick. So all the rest of this chapter uh, was essentially describing how the Buddha can essentially share his teachings throughout the entire universe, throughout all these different realms, essentially. They're using different language than what we might use today, where we would think about the universe. They're thinking about these world systems. And it was noted during his lifetime how heavenly beings would actually come and light up the sky and seek guidance and understanding for his teachings. This last part here is where Ananda is kind of taking a bit of pride in the fact that his teacher is so wise and is able to share the teachings so far and wide and that he's an actual Buddha. And eventually the Buddha gets to a point where he predicts that Ananda is going to get to enlightenment during that particular life. This is one of the other qualities of what a Buddha does. Not really a quality or criteria, but kind of what a Buddha does. A Buddha can determine if somebody's going to get to enlightenment in this life. They might not always tell that person uh, whether they're going to get to enlightenment or whether they're not going to get to enlightenment, but there are some rare situations where a Buddha might share with somebody uh, that they're going to get to enlightenment in this lifetime. Uh, it can be potentially motivational, but it can also potentially elicit complacency. So a Buddha would know the right time and place and when or if they should even share that kind of content. And the Buddha was actually 100% correct because it was reported that about three months after the death of the Buddha, Ananda does finally get to enlightenment. Ananda is one of the Buddha's closest students, and he was with the Buddha for essentially his entire teaching career of 45 years. He is reported to be one of the cousins of Siddhartha Gautama, who ultimately became the Buddha. And over that 45-year period, he was essentially with the Buddha uh, continuously for quite a lot of these discourses. In fact, Ananda is credited for delivering these teachings that we're reading, that when they convened after the death of the Buddha, it was Ananda who had the deep, profound memory to be able to recount the vast majority of the teachings of the Buddha from memory and be able to recite that so that other people could then agree that, yes, that's what the Buddha actually taught. And then they were able to capture it and preserve it for future generations. 
And I suspect that the reason why Ananda didn't get to enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha is that he was actually attached to the Buddha because there's a, another discourse where the Buddha is alerting people that he's about to die and that in three months he's going to actually die. And then Ananda kind of pleads with him not to die. And this kind of elicits somebody who's actually attached is that he was pleading with the Buddha not to die. He wasn't ready for the Buddha to die. And then, okay, from that point, three months goes by, the Buddha actually dies when you know he said he was going to die. And then three months from that, Ananda finally gets to the point where, in my opinion, he's eliminated this attachment to the Buddha and he actually gets to enlightenment. Because three months after the death of the Buddha, they convene what's called the First Council. This is done at a cave in India. And this First Council is essentially 500 of the enlightened beings. You know, there's countless enlightened beings during the lifetime of the Buddha, but they convened this council of 500 arahants, of enlightened beings. And there was one person who was going to attend. Essentially, there was 499 enlightened beings, and there was one person, Ananda, who was not yet enlightened. And it was known that he wasn't enlightened, and they still invited him to the meeting anyway because they knew he had this deep, profound memory of the teachings of the Buddha, and he was with the Buddha for so long. But the night prior to the meeting, it's said that Ananda actually gets to enlightenment, so he makes the 500th enlightened being that's at that first council, and he's relied on pretty extensively for his wisdom and understanding the discourses of the Buddha. So the Buddha's prediction here actually was true, that he knew that Ananda would get to enlightenment during that particular lifetime. So what questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Um, yes, sir. I have a few questions on Facebook here. Uh, the first is actually from a previous chapter, um, page 418, section J. Vimut Tairat asks, I am interested to see my husband and his father to be reunited with those long lost, father with his child, child with father. It's been 14 years they have not talked to each other. What is the best way to do it without my craving, desire, and attachment, sir? I feel my bodily sensation here while I am taking this question. Yeah, that shows that there's definitely craving, desire, attachment. They are wanting these people to come back together and have conversation. Essentially, the best thing to do is train your mind to let it go first, because if you try to do anything while there's craving, desire, attachment, it's probably going to be clouded with this craving, desire, attachment. It's not going to be the wisest decision. So if I was you, I would first work on your own craving, desire, attachment, working to let that go. And then once you feel that you've let it go, you don't feel that discontentedness or the arising of bodily sensations associated with even thinking about it, then you might talk to your husband and ask, you know, are you interested in this privately? You know, he might not be interested. Uh, maybe talk to the other people privately and see if they're interested. And then if there's interest, you know, encourage them to reach out to each other because while sometimes we are interested in being a peacemaker, in reality, the real problem is between those individuals. 
you don't have a problem with your husband. You don't have a problem with, the, I think you said his brother um, or other people, but they have a problem with each other. So when we insert ourselves in the middle, we think that we're actually solving the problem, but we're really not because the problem isn't between us and the other people. The problem is between those two people. So they are the ones that have to sit down and talk if they're going to have a relationship. So if you're interested in asking them and they're like, no, absolutely not. I'll never talk to them ever again in this lifetime. Then, you know, you know, it's better for you to not progress forward with that. Or if the other one's saying the same thing, you know, then it's just not going to necessarily happen. And you have to be able to be willing to let that go. But if they're like, well, you know, give me some more time. I need to process things. I need to think it through, you know, you know, you might just kind of check in with them individually. And then if they, are interested say the brother's interested and you're talking to the husband because you've already talked to the brother and the brother's like yeah i'd like to talk to him at some point and then you talk to your husband your husband's like well i'm not really sure if i would like to talk to him i'm not sure if i'm ready to move on from this that's where you can say well i've talked to your brother and he's actually ready to talk to you it seems like he's much more calm much more level-headed and it seems like you guys might find a a good conversation and then allow it to happen naturally if we push it or we force it or we try to control it then people feel pressured and typically what people do is they dig their heels in and they resist but if you just kind of lightly encourage it then that can be really wise for you you can even have events where maybe you go to a restaurant and your husband's coming to meet you there or you're there with your husband and the brother shows up because you invited the brother. This can be helpful sometimes too that, you know, just have them come together in a public space where you know they're not going to be aggressive and hostile with each other, that they'll tend to be more polite and cordial when they're in a neutral environment. Where if the brother's coming to the other brother's house, this is kind of like his territory. There might be more dominance, more ego there. Whereas if there's kind of like a neutral Uh, meeting place, this can kind of relax everybody's ego and kind of come into it with a level head. And if there's other people around, they're less likely to be hostile and aggressive or bitter with each other because they're trying to act civilly in front of other people. But the number one thing is you just need to train the mind to let it go and realize that it's between those two people. And then where you can kind of help out, you help out, but it may not come to be. And that's why you need to be willing to let it go first. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, next two questions are about the chapter that we are reading. Um, Paul Lee asks on Facebook, why just a thousand and not a billion, a trillion? Why set a limit and is not limitless? Yeah, so during the lifetime of the Buddha, they didn't have the number system that counted up to a million. The word million was only invented in the 1500s. So people couldn't count and couldn't even fathom millions and billions at that particular time. The highest numbers that I've seen in the Buddhist teachings is kind of like 100,000. It seems like they were able to count that high. And anything after that was just kind of like immeasurable to them because they didn't have the number system to be able to count that high. So they did have what the Buddha described as an eon, which is incalculable and immeasurable. So anything beyond, uh, you know, 100,000 or 999,000 or whatever it was that they were able to count to at that particular time was just immeasurable and incalculable. Yes, thank you, sir. As a follow-up question, Paul Lee asks, 
all these heavenly beings are just a projection and not really that there are existence of heavenly beings is just a form of projection at that time? There are heavenly beings. There's five realms of existence, the hell realm, animal realm, the afflicted spirits realm, which is kind of like ghosts. And then there's the human realm and the heavenly realm. These are actual beings that exist. And we say that they're realms, but in reality, it's the same time and space. So right here, this human being is sitting in a chair, but a dog or a cat or a spider or a, or something else, an ant could come and sit here, which is an animal. These are the two formless beings, animals and humans. But then there's formless beings in the hell realm, afflicted spirit, and heavenly realm as well. And they're right here in this same time and space as us. Oftentimes when we use the word realm, we think that they're really far away somewhere, but they're actually in the same time and space. And if as you awaken the mind more and more, you may end up experiencing communication from these other beings in this formless realm. Of course, you've interacted with many animals probably throughout your life, but the hell beings, the afflicted spirit beings, the heavenly beings, they can communicate with us. They can also sometimes make themselves appear as a form, looking like a form being, but they're really not but they can kind of appear that way in some situations. So they are real beings that really exist. And the way that you know that for sure is if you've ever observed them with your eyes or you've ever heard them speak and have interaction with you, this is where you'll be able to know that these beings exist 100%. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. It appears there are no more questions at this time. Okay. One thing I would like to share before we move off of this chapter, although the Buddha doesn't mention it here, he mentions it in other parts of his teachings, that in order to get to enlightenment, an individual, a practitioner, would need to have confidence in him, confidence in his teachings, and confidence in the community of practitioners that he's uh, essentially teaching. Because if somebody didn't have confidence that the Buddha was actually enlightened, why would you ever even think about you know, practicing his teachings or learning his teachings? Because... You don't have confidence that he's actually enlightened. So when somebody has confidence in the Buddha, then they know like, okay, this person definitely is enlightened because look at how impactful his teachings are and have been over the so many uh, hundreds of years. And then if you have confidence in his teachings and the way that you gain confidence is you learn them, you reflect on them and you practice them and you see the condition of your mind gradually improving where discontentedness gradually diminishes. And that's what grows your confidence in the teachings as well as in the Buddha. And then as you participate in a community of practitioners, this is where you also gain support and you gain confidence in the community. And in order to get to enlightenment, you would need all three. You would need confidence in the Buddha, confidence in his teachings, and confidence in the community. Or another way to say that is confidence in the Buddha, access to his teachings, and then being part of a community. A person going out in the forest by themselves to get enlightened, that only happens very rarely in the last time that the world is aware that that happened is 2,500 years ago. So it's very rare for somebody to be able to attain enlightenment on their own. And once they do, and they meet all the other criteria, they're actually a Buddha. But for you, you would need to build up this confidence. And right now you might have doubt in the Buddha. You might have doubt in his teachings. You might have doubt in the community, but as you learn and as you participate, as you 
practice the teachings and see the improvement to the condition of the mind, this is where your confidence grows and you remove all doubt from the mind, which is going to help you get closer and closer to enlightenment. Without that confidence, you wouldn't be able to accomplish that because you would be lacking confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. And this is called the triple gem or the triple jewel. These are the three things that you would need is confidence in the Buddha, access to his true teachings, and then be part of the community of people that are going to support you and encourage you and, and actually help you along the path to enlightenment. So I'd just like to share that. And you'll see that in other discourses where he talks about that in terms of confidence. So now we're in chapter 145. Yes, sir. This is another one that's a bit long. I was going to read the first half of this one, and then Rick will read the second half. Sounds good. Recipient and the fruit of such gift. Dear Ananda, by giving a gift to an animal, the offering may be predicted to pay a hun- repay a hundredfold. By giving a gift to an unwholesome, ordinary person, the offering may be predicted to repay a thousandfold. By giving a gift to a virtuous, practicing moral conduct, ordinary person, the offering may be predicted to repay a hundred thousandfold. By giving a gift to one outside the community who is free from craving for sensual pleasures, the offering may be predicted to repay a hundred thousand times a hundred thousandfold. By giving a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit stream entry, the offering may be predicted to repay incalculably, immeasurably. What then should be said about giving a gift to a stream enterer? What should be said about giving a gift to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of once returner, to a once returner, to one who has entered upon the way to realization of the fruit of non-returner, to a non-returner, to one who has entered upon the way to the realization of the fruit of arahantship, to an arahant, to a pake chabuda. What should be said about giving a gift to a tathagata, accomplished and fully perfectly enlightened? There are seven kinds of offerings made to the community, Ananda. One gives a gift to the commun- to a community of both male and female ordained practitioners headed by the Buddha. This is the first kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift to the community of both male and female ordained practitioners after the Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. This is the second kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift to the community of male ordained practitioners. This is the third kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift to the community of female ordained practitioners. This is the fourth kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift saying, appoint so many male and female ordained practitioners for me from the community. This is the fifth kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift saying, appoint so many male ordained practitioners for me from the community. This is the sixth kind of offering made to the community. One gives a gift saying, appoint so many female ordained practitioners for me from the community. This is the seventh kind of offering made to the community. In future times, Ananda, there will be members of the clan who are yellow necks, immoral, of unwholesome character. People will give gifts to these unwholesome persons for the sake of the community. Even then, I say, an offering made to the community is incalculable, immeasurable, 
And I say that in no way is a gift to a person individually ever more fruitful than an offering made to the community. I'll let you go on from there, Rick. Thank you, ma'am. There are, Ananda, four kinds of purification of offering. What for? There is the offering that is purified by the donor, not by the recipient. There is the offering that is purified by the recipient, not by the donor. There is the offering that is purified neither by the donor nor the recipient. There is the offering that is purified both by the donor and by the recipient. And how is the offering purified by the donor, not by the recipient? Here, the donor is virtuous, practicing moral conduct of wholesome character, and the recipient is immoral, the unwholesome of unwholesome character. Thus, the offering is purified by the donor, not by the recipient. And how is the offering purified by the recipient, not by the donor? Here, the donor is immoral, of unwholesome character, and the recipient is virtuous of wholesome character. Thus, the offering is purified by the recipient, not by the donor. And how is the offering purified neither by the donor nor by the recipient? Here, the do donor is immoral, of unwholesome character, and the recipient is immoral, of unwholesome character. Thus, the offering is purified neither by the donor or by the recipient. And how is the offering purified both by the donor and by, and by the recipient? Here, the donor is virtuous, of wholesome character, and the recipient is virtuous, of wholesome character. Thus, the offering is purified both by the donor and by the recipient. These are the four kinds of purification of offering. That is what the perfectly enlightened one said. When the fortunate one had said that, the teacher said further. When a virtuous person to an unwholesome person gives with trusting heart a gift righteously obtained, placing confidence that the fruit of action is great, the donor's virtues purifies the offering. When an unwholesome person to a virtuous person gives with untrusting heart a gift unrighteously obtained, nor, place, nor places confidence that the fruit of action is great, the recipient's virtue purifies the offering. When an unwholesome person to an unwholesome person gives with untrusting heart a gift unrighteously obtained, nor places confidence that the fruit of action is great, neither's virtue purifies the offering. When a virtuous person to a virtuous person gives with trusting heart a gift righteously obtains, placing confidence that the fruit of action is great, that gift, I say, will come to full fruition. When a passionless person is a passion, when a passionless person to a passionless person gives with trusting heart a gift righteously obtains, placing confidence that the fruit of action is great, that gift, I say, is the best of worldly gifts. All right. Thank you, Miranda and Rick. So here, what the Buddha is talking about is practicing generosity to create merit. And the first part, he's just talking about generosity, you know, making a gift or an offering to an animal, to an unwholesome, ordinary person, to a virtuous person. But then, and then he talks about somebody outside the community, because remember, there was other 
teachers and other practitioners who were claiming that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment, but the Buddha knew during his lifetime that it was his teachings. It wasn't just the Buddha. You would think that it was like the Buddha teaching and everybody knew he was a Buddha and then everybody learned with him. But that's not actually the way this happens. That would be permanence. The way that it works when a Buddha arises is it's only the people who actually learn and study with that individual and they start understanding the teachings. They get to enlightenment in a relatively short period of time. They understand that teacher's background and they know that this person's an actual Buddha. So as the Buddha was teaching, there were other teachers and other practitioners that were learning from those teachers that people made offerings to. They didn't just make offerings to the Buddha and his students, but they made offerings to others as well. So this first part, the Buddha is essentially talking about practice of generosity and that it does benefit you because it's essentially helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, where you're not holding on to things tightly. You're training the mind to let go and not be selfish, eliminating craving, desire, attachment. Breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity are working together in order to train the mind to let go. But then he talks about giving a gift to members of his community, someone who is actually a stream enterer, which is the first stage of enlightenment. And he's saying this particular gift, this offering is incalculable. It's immeasurable because if somebody's made it to stream entry, once returner, non-returner, or otter hunt, these are the four stages of enlightenment. And being able to make an offering to that individual, it's immeasurably beneficial because you're supporting somebody who's actively on the path, who's made significant progress on the path. And by supporting them with offerings of food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, or nowadays we also offer financial support so that people can have a little bit of money to take care of the things that they need to take care of. This is going towards the continued growth of that individual and that individual is ultimately going to probably end up sharing their teachings at some point perhaps not everybody does but if they're ordained they typically will and this is going to help an immeasurable number of people so not only is your offering helping that individual get to enlightenment because they're able to focus their time and their practice on getting to enlightenment they don't have to be involved in a occupation on a day-to-day basis instead they can just focus on their own practice and then as they get closer and closer to enlightenment if they choose to teach not only did you your offering help that individual get to enlightenment which is wonderful but their teachings are then going to help lots of other people get to enlightenment so the buddha goes through these individuals that he's talking about a stream enter a once-returner, a non-returner, and an otter hunt. These are the four stages of enlightenment. Then, kind of rare in his teachings, you hear him talking about this Pakasika Buddha, or however we would like to pronounce that. What this individual is, is this is someone who's gotten to enlightenment on their own, but they don't choose to share the teachings that help them get to enlightenment. They essentially get to enlightenment, and then they just go about their, their daily life. A true Buddha is one who meets those three criteria. They get to enlightenment by themselves, dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings, and countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they preserve their teachings in such a way countless more people can get to enlightenment. But this particular type of individual doesn't actually do that. They just get to enlightenment on their own, and then that's it. They don't make any other efforts to go further from there. So giving a gift to any of those people is definitely very, very, very helpful. 
And then a Tathagata. This is a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, someone who meets those three criteria that we've talked about. This is immeasurable benefit. And it's not just to that individual and to the world, but if you're able to come in contact with individuals like this, first stage, second, third, fourth stage of enlightenment, a person who gets to enlightenment on their own, or a Tathagata, one who's fully perfectly enlightened, this is actually helping your practice too, not only to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, to share and make generous offerings, but you're coming in contact with an individual who can share wisdom with you that's going to help you get to enlightenment. That's where the real benefit is. It's not this mysterious, magical thing that happens that when you make a gift, all of a sudden you get all this benefit. The benefit that you're receiving is the craving, desire, attachment is being minimized by you making regular offerings, but also you're gaining wisdom to be able to learn and practice these teachings and you're helping these teachings to be available to other people as well. This is why we call it merit, is that you're helping the teachings to continue into the world. And you're doing that through learning and practicing yourself because as you interact with people, having learned these teachings, you're gonna cause less harm and you're gonna interact with people in a different way than you would otherwise. We were talking about this before class about how you, how we kind of grow up in a certain culture and we're kind of used to functioning in a certain way based on our culture and kind of customs that we live in a certain country. But when you come in contact with people that understand these teachings and maybe practicing them very deeply, even to the level of being enlightened or a Tathagata, then you're going to be seeing this new perspective and this new way of interacting in the world, this better way of life. And this is going to help you to cultivate those same traits, those same qualities, and that same wisdom that leads to cultivating those qualities. So the Buddha talks about different ways of different uh, groups of practitioners within his community that you might make offerings to. But then he goes into talking about these four ways of purifying an offering or not purifying an offering. And what purifying an offering is, is that the donor, the person who's donating the offering, is of wholesome uh, conduct. And the way that the recipient can purify the offering is by they themselves also practicing wholesome conduct. If in either situation, the donor is wholesome and the recipient's not, then it's only the donor who's really purifying the offering is what the Buddha is explaining. But the best case scenario is that both the donor is practicing wholesome conduct and the recipient is as well. And this allows the offering to be even more potent and more powerful because the donor has learned teachings very deeply to the point where maybe they've eliminated craving, desire, attachment. And then the recipient and the person you're making the offering to has perhaps done the same thing. And that's what the Buddha gets to down here where he says, when a passionless person to a passionless person gives, what he's saying here is somebody without craving, right? We tend to think about passion as like romantic passion. I have this passion for this potential life partner or boyfriend, girlfriend or whatever. And we think of that as, as a good thing. But if you've got this burning passion for somebody, that's craving desire attachment and it's going to burn out. This is why people come into a relationship. They're really passionate with each other and then it doesn't feel the same anymore. And then they fall apart and they separate. So if there's a whole lot of passion in a relationship, you're actually setting yourself up to fail. So here the Buddha is saying that 
a passionless person to a passionless person or a person without craving desire attachment to another person without craving desire attachment. He's saying that gift I say is the best of worldly gifts because when this offering is being made from the donor to the recipient, both people having no craving desire attachment whatsoever, he's saying, ah, that's the best thing because these people are essentially free of craving desire attachment, which means the mind is free of discontentedness and these people are enlightened. So this is very helpful for those individuals and it's helpful for the world. And that's why the Buddha is saying this is the best of worldly gifts that could occur. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Allie has her hand raised. Let's go to her for her question. Thank you, Marina. Thank you, um, Teacher David. So my question is, what if like um, you are making money not in a morally way and then you are generous? I mean, you're donating that money to um, other people. For instance, my cousin, she owned a donut shop and she's selling cigarettes, which is, I don't think it's, uh, she sells cigarettes to Magna and stuff like that. But then she said, I mean, um, she's giving money to um, orphanage in Cambodia. She's donating a lot of money, but then the source of money that she's bringing in, it's not really pure. So how does that um, work out? I mean, um, yeah. That's part of what the Buddha is explaining here, and he explains it in more detail in other teachings. When we get into volume 13, you'll see where he talks about generosity, because that book is all about generosity. But if somebody is immoral or unwholesome, which is what the Buddha is saying here, is there's not the purification of the gift. So the Buddha talks about, in his teachings, about generosity, about earning income righteously, is what he talks about essentially in a wholesome way. And this is going to produce better results for you. But if somebody is acquiring income or money in an unwholesome way, then they're going to experience the results of that gamma. You may not be around when it happens, but they're experiencing the results of that as they progress in life, in this life, the next life, or some future life beyond that. So instead of being worried or concerned about other people best to really focus on your own practice and not worry about what others are doing but you can be assured that if somebody's doing things that are unwholesome the natural law of gamma is going to apply to them and it's going to affect them it may already be in affecting them but you just aren't aware of it so just let them be they're going to make whatever decisions they make if they're really close to you as a family member you can potentially talk to them and maybe help them a little bit, but oftentimes people aren't interested in your help unless they're asking for it. Um, and you just get to a point where you're willing to let go and realize that, okay, you know, that's their choice, that's their decisions, and they're going to experience the results. The way that I say it is their life, their decisions, their results. And we just have to be comfortable with letting go and realizing that that's the way it's going to happen. So I'm sorry, it's a crap kind of uh, follow up. So what about the good deed that she does? Does that offset each other? No, it doesn't. So when somebody's doing something wholesome, it's going to produce wholesome results. But if they're over here doing unwholesome things, they're still going to have to experience the results of those unwholesome 
conduct that they're making. They're not going to experience liberation and peacefulness and enlightenment if they're still doing unwholesomeness. In order to get to enlightenment and free the mind from the discontent feelings and from the cycle of rebirth, they would have to extinguish all unwholesome gamma and making 100% wise decisions. And as we get closer and closer to enlightenment, we're kind of throttling down our unwholesome or unwise decisions and we're throttling up our wise decisions that are leading to wholesome results. But we're not here, not that you're doing this, Ali, but we're not here to judge another person as wholesome or unwholesome or wise or unwise, but just know that you can't run and hide from your unwise and unwholesome decisions. It's going to produce unwholesomeness at some point. It may already be, but you're just not aware of it. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. No, because I was just like, because it's, it's not like she's doing something wholesome, but her, her wholesome action is a result from the unwholesome action. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a part of it is unwholesome and the other part of it is wholesome. So you may have seen things in the news where like, are you familiar with a Ponzi scheme? Are you familiar with that? No. So they have these things where like somebody will set up as if they're an investor and they will take in money from an investor and they'll promise you like a 30% return on your money. And when people first start investing, they actually return the money quite regularly. But the where they're getting their money from is actually other investors. They're not actually investing the money. They're just taking in lots and lots and lots of money. And initially they're trying to build up their reputation so they're giving back lots of returns but as this gets bigger and bigger and bigger they aren't able to keep up with the demands and they're not able to return the money but the way that they will oftentimes be viewed positively in the community and build up their ability to scam people out of money is that they will give money to charity and then they'll get their name in the news they'll look really wonderful that they're giving money to charity and it'll look really great for them and it looks like they're so rich and so wealthy because they're giving two million dollars away or they're giving ten million dollars away or something like this and what they're trying to do is they're just trying to build their reputation as being rich and wealthy and a great investor but in reality it's money that they're kind of scamming from other people and eventually all of this comes crashing down because it's Mm -hmm. built on lies essentially but even in this situation where they're kind of stealing money from one group of people to give money to another person or another organization, it's not producing wholesome results. It's going to produce unwholesome results. It just maybe hasn't, isn't apparent to you from the outside looking in and from the outside looking in, you might not see everything collapse until much later, but there's definitely going to be an effect if there's not already one. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Yes, sir. I see Rick has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question. Thank you, ma'am. Yes, Middleway on YouTube asks, what are your thoughts of being a donor on your driving license in the USA? Buddhist, what are, you know, what would be the Buddhist perspective and would you recommend it? You know, it's, it comes down to your personal choice and what you would like to do. The Thai people here, they will oftentimes sign up for being an organ donor and even donating their body to science to be researched as part of their Buddhist practice because 
one of the things that the mind wants to do is it wants to hold on to this physical body and the mind thinking that this is yours and it belongs to you. Oftentimes we go through extensive amount of planning for our funeral because we want everything to be exactly one particular way. But what you're trying to do on this path to enlightenment is let go of this personal existence view, which is one of those fetters or one of those taints, one of those pollutions of mind. So choosing to be an organ donor is actually a way to get comfortable with death. This can be helpful for that. It can also be a way for you to let go of the physical body and choosing not to hold on to it tightly and realizing this doesn't belong to you and helping with loving kindness and compassion to give life to others or give this body to research to be able to be researched for particular purposes of science and advancing our understanding of the human body. So this can be advisable and it can actually be really helpful for your Buddhist practice, but it really comes down to your own personal choice. And it's not necessarily for everyone, but if you think about it in terms of eliminating personal existence view, which is that first fetter of the 10 fetters, it can be really helpful for that and for helping to get comfortable with death. Yes, thank you, sir. A mm-hmm. um, couple of questions on Facebook. Paul Lee, I think this is in response to what you said after the previous chapter. How do we prove ghosts and heavenly beings that we do not see with our eyes? Sorry. And Sorry, go ahead. Okay, were you done? <laughs> the second part to his question. Let me ask, Sorry. let me answer the first part first. Um, so, uh, So a teacher isn't going to be able to to convince you that heavenly beings or a ghost or afflicted spirits exist. In fact, a Buddhist teacher shouldn't be trying to convince you of anything at all. Instead, we're just here as guides. And as you have questions and you're digging into the teachings and investigating them, we're helping you through guidance. And as you learn and practice those teachings and the mind becomes less and less polluted, i.e. more and more awake, moving to this higher consciousness, you may get to a point in your life where you do observe afflicted spirits in the fixed spirit realm or the heavenly beings in the heavenly uh, realm. But this isn't required in order for you to get to enlightenment. Sometimes what we're taught in other traditions is you kind of need to believe everything or believe nothing. And it's all about belief and believing these certain things. In the Buddhist teachings, there's no belief whatsoever. It's all about learning, reflecting, and practicing training the mind, independently verifying the teachings and getting to wisdom where you've trained the mind so well that you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing and eventually getting to the point where the mind is completely enlightened and you're no longer experiencing any discontentedness. If you're able to do that through these teachings and you never see any ghosts in the afflicted spirit realm or you never see any heavenly beings, well, so be it. You know, you don't necessarily need the, to know those things or see those things in order to get to enlightenment. Where the cycle of rebirth, I think, really helps an individual is that it helps you to have motivation and encouragement uh, in a couple of different ways. One way is if you've had a lot of misery and grief and despair in this particular life, the last thing you're interested in doing is coming back and repeating it all over again. And if you know that the cycle of rebirth is there, it can be internal motivation to help encourage you and motivate you towards getting to enlightenment so that you don't come back and repeat it all over again. It can also help you that you see that these things around you 
and the way that your life has been conducted is it's this constant cycle of doing things over and over and over again. You keep having the same problems over and over and over again. And being stuck in the cycle of rebirth isn't what anybody would be interested to do. So training the mind and moving out of the cycle of rebirth is going to help you so that you don't experience continuous grief and misery and despair. So it can be motivating if you choose to look at it that way. But when someone's first starting to learn with me, I typically suggest to them and encourage to put the cycle of birth to the side, the cycle of rebirth to the side, because you don't need to have this be the thing that you're looking to prove or disprove. Instead, look to prove or disprove the, the three universal truths and the four noble truths and the eightfold path and the five precepts and the three poisons and the meditation that the Buddha taught and all of these other things that are part of the core path. That's what's actually going to get you to enlightenment. So I would encourage people to focus on that and just realize that as you do those things, you may get to a point at some point where you have evidence of afflicted spirits and or heavenly beings. But even when you do, let's just say like tonight, you see a ghost or an afflicted spirit or you see heavenly beings. Okay, you know they exist. What's next? Well, you still need to know the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path. You still need to do meditation to train the mind to eliminate discontentedness. So even when you have confidence that these things actually exist, you still have to do all the work on the core central teachings and the core path to get to enlightenment. Understanding the cycle of rebirth, while it can be motivational, it's not going to determine whether you get to enlightenment or not. What's going to determine that is how well you learn and practice the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings plug into the Eightfold Path. That's what's going to get you to enlightenment. Yes, sir. Um, the second part of the question, and these communications are thus what we created or manifest out from our own side? There's nothing that's being manifested in the teachings of the Buddha and what a practitioner is in being encouraged to learn and practice. Communication and observing the beings in these other realms, it really truly happens. I can speak from experience that you can see these other beings in some situations and other situations you can't see them, but there's communication from those beings. And it's not something that a individual goes around and brags about or needs to discuss or anything like that. But if or when this ever happens, you'll have the confidence to know that these are in fact the truth. The other thing that can help you going back to those core and central teachings of the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, and so on, is that if you learn all of those things deeply and your mind is awakening and you get to enlightenment where the mind no longer experiences any anger, sadness, frustration, and so forth, and the mind is just peaceful and joyful for the rest of this life, even if you never understand the cycle of rebirth in terms of seeing beings in the hell realm, afflicted spirit, or heavenly realm, you'll have so much confidence in the Buddha at that point, having attained enlightenment, that you will know that this person's teachings led you from being angry and sad and frustrated and annoyed and all these other discontent feelings to the mind being completely peaceful and joyful. 
And he didn't just slip in the cycle of rebirth and like, aha, I got you. I told you the truth about all that other stuff and how to get to enlightenment. And now your mind is peaceful and joyful for the rest of this life. But I just slipped this cycle of rebirth stuff in there just because I, I, I wasn't telling the truth about that stuff. That's not the way that a Buddha functions or a Buddha you know, conducts themselves. When you start confirming the truth on all these other teachings and you remove doubt because you see the condition of the mind improving, even if you get to a point where the mind's enlightened and you've never seen these beings in these other realms, you can at least have confidence that, okay, I've never seen these things, but the Buddha said everything else that the Buddha talked about was true and it led me to enlightenment. So this cycle of rebirth stuff, yeah, I'll take him on his word that this stuff is true because everything else he taught was true. So if you ever see beings in these other realms or you ever see your past lives, one of the ways people experience this is they have deja vu where the residual memories are kind of coming to the surface. If you start having these things as the mind awakens, then you'll have more and more confidence in the cycle of rebirth. But you'll never get to that point if all you do is focus on the cycle of rebirth. So it's important and I would like to really encourage you to focus on those core teachings to awaken the mind because that's what's going to ultimately help you to confirm the cycle of rebirth if you ever need that to be confirmed. Because as I mentioned, you could actually get to enlightenment without having ever seen your past lives or seeing these other beings. And that's completely fine. The goal is to get to enlightenment. Uh, whether these beings exist or they don't exist, it's not going to change that you need to learn and practice the Eightfold Path in order to get to enlightenment. But I can tell you with 100% certainty, all five of these realms and the individual beings in those realms, they do exist. And if you ever experience that for yourself, then wonderful. If you don't, then so be it. Just keep focusing on the core path so you can actually experience liberation or freedom of strong feelings or peace and joy in the mind. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul also asks, yellow, Nick, would that be in reference to the yellow hat of the Tibetan Mahayana Buddhist, sir? The Tibetan Buddhist didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. He may have been referring to that and kind of being able to see ahead. But what he's essentially referring to is unwholesome uh, individuals. And I don't know what he was referring to in terms of yellow neck, but he was referring to some type of unwholesome individuals. And uh, that's all I really know about that. I don't really know much more about that. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's move to the next chapter, which is chapter 146. Yes, thank you, sir. The rare appearance of five treasures. The Chavis. The appearance of five treasures is rare in the world. What five? One, the appearance of a Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, is rare in the world. Two, a person who can teach the teachings and discipline proclaimed by a Tathagata is rare in the world. Three, when the teachings and discipline proclaimed by a Tathagata has been taught, a person who can understand it is rare in the world. Four, when the teachings and discipline proclaimed by a Tathagata has been taught, a person who can understand it and practice in accordance with the teachings is rare in the world. Five, a grateful and thankful person is rare in the world. The Chavis, the appearance of these five treasures is rare in the world. All right. 
Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is explaining that a Buddha, a Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, is very rare in the world. This can help you to see that when other people say that you are a Buddha, even no, I'm not a Buddha, right? You can say that about yourself because the Buddha is explaining how rare it is for someone to awaken as a perfectly enlightened one, a Tathagata. And then for somebody to be able to share the teachings, he's saying is rare because his teachings uh, require somebody to first do the work in transforming their own mind. And through transforming their own mind, they then have the wisdom to help other people do that. So to be able to share the teachings and discipline proclaimed by a Buddha is very rare for an individual to be able to teach. And then when the teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tagata has been taught, a person that understands it is also rare. So that's why classes that we teach, you don't see, you know, 500 people in these classes or you don't see, you know, a thousand people in these classes because it's a lot of work to learn and understand these teachings. And not everyone in the world is willing to do that work. So someone who understands the teachings is really rare. And then he says someone who can actually practice them in the way that he taught them is also very rare. Again, that's why we don't see, you know, gazillions of people, you know, in the world that are learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings because it's a lot of work. And then once somebody's done all this work to share these teachings with others, it's very rare for a student to be grateful and thankful to that teacher for the teachings that they're sharing. Because a teacher who's sharing the teachings, they're not asking for anything. They're not expecting anything. But as somebody learns and practices and experiences the results, as they get closer and closer to enlightenment, students tend to get more and more grateful. They tend to get more and more thankful as they see the condition of their mind improving. But it's rare because somebody would need to have taught the teaching. Somebody would need to have learned them and understood them. Someone would need to be practicing them the way that the Buddha taught. And then ultimately, that's what leads to somebody being very grateful and thankful. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any other, any questions at this time, sir. All right. So now we will go to chapter 147. A helpful person. That is so, Ananda. That is so. When one person, owing to another, has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community, I say that it is not easy for the former to repay the latter by paying homage or respect to him, rising up for him, according him respectful salutation and polite services, and by providing robes, alms food, resting places, and medicinal supplies. When one being, owing to another, has come to abstain from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, from misconduct and sensual pleasures, from false speech, and from wine, liquor, and intoxicants, or substances that cause heedlessness, which are the basis of heedlessness, I say that it is not easy for the former to repay the latter by paying homage to him, rising up for him, according him respectful salutation and polite services, and by providing robes, alms food, resting places, and medicinal supplies. When one person, owing to another, has come to possess unwavering confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community, and to possess the virtues praised by the noble ones, 
I say that it is not easy for the former to repay the latter by paying homage to him, rising up for him, according him respectful salutation and polite services, and by providing robes, alms food, resting places, and medicinal supplies. When one person, owing to another, has become free from doubt about discontentedness, about the cause of discontentedness, about the elimination of discontentedness, and about the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness, I say that it is not easy for the former to repay the latter by paying homage to him, rising up for him, according him respectful salutation and polite services, and by providing robes, alms food, resting places, and medicinal supplies. All right, thank you, Miranda. So here, the Buddha is essentially putting his teachings on the five precepts, on having confidence in him, the teachings in the community, on having respect and, and gratitude, on understanding the Four Noble Truths, which is this last paragraph here, where he talks about the, the Four Noble Truths, being free of doubt about discontentedness, meaning what is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is the Four Noble Truths. He's pointing people to the Four Noble Truths continuously throughout his teachings because that's where you get the breakthrough. That's where you understand what is the discontentedness, what is the cause, the elimination, and the way forward. If you don't understand what causes anger or sadness, then you haven't yet had that breakthrough yet. You haven't yet understood what is right view. You need to get to a point where fairly early on that you understand what is the cause of discontent feelings like anger, sadness, jealousy, resentment. And if you know the answer to that, like if I ask you the question, what is the cause of discontentedness? And you're able to answer that really easily and you can see that it's true through your own independent verification, then you're understanding this Four Noble Truths. And now the real breakthrough as you practice, as you experience discontentedness, you know what the cause is. So therefore, now you can work to eliminate it. If you don't know what the cause of discontentedness is, then you wouldn't be able to actually eliminate it. So getting to the point where you have this breakthrough and establishing right view through learning, reflecting, and practicing the Four Noble Truths is so crucial to anybody's path to enlightenment. It's in fact the first step of getting to enlightenment is to establish right view. So the Buddha is really prioritizing this and sharing how it's really important to get to that breakthrough. And he talks about this and points to the Four Noble Truths continuously throughout his teachings. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's move to 148, which is the last chapter of this particular book in this particular class. This holy life is lived for the abandoning of existence. This world is burning. Harmed by contact, it calls disease a self. By whatever it means, it understands anything. It becomes otherwise than that. Becoming otherwise, the world is attached to becoming harmed by existence and yet has excitement in that very existence. Where there is excitement, there is fear. What one fears is stressful. This holy life is lived for the abandoning of existence. Whatever ascetics or Brahmins say that liberation from existence is by means of existence, all of them are not released from existence, I say. 
And whatever ascetics or Brahmins say that escape from existence is by means of non-existence, all of them have not escaped from existence, I say. For this stress comes into play in dependence on every gain of material possessions. With the ending of every craving desire, there's no stress coming into play. Look at this world. Beings afflicted with thick ignorance, unknowing of true reality, are unreleased from passion for what has come to be. All levels of existence anywhere, in any way, are impermanent, stressful, subject to change. Seeing this as it's come to be, with right wisdom, one abandons craving for existence and doesn't have excitement in non-existence. From the total ending of craving comes fading and elimination without remainder, liberation or enlightenment. For the monk who is liberated through lack of craving and desire, there's no further existence. He has conquered Mara, won the battle, having gone beyond existences such. All right, thank you, Miranda. So I, in the explanation that I provide as part of each chapter, I've gone line by line and explained what every single one of these mean. Uh, and I encourage you guys to read that if you would like to understand this chapter in a lot of detail, because that's helpful. Because this particular teaching, the Buddha was actually meditating for about seven days straight, according to the Pali Canon. And when he emerged from that, he delivered this discourse and he says the world's burning. What he's essentially referring to is the three fires, which we also refer to as the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance. A Buddha can see in the world the extensive amounts of craving, anger, and ignorance and all the harms and all the problems that it's causing. They also have the solutions of how to solve it, but each individual has to choose for themselves to learn and practice. So he declares that the world's burning. Essentially, the world is a fire with all of these three fires of craving, anger, and ignorance. And the more your mind ascends closer and closer to enlightenment, you might see the same thing, where when you go out in the world, you might see people arguing and fighting and bickering and being hostile and aggressive with each other. You might see all of these challenges based on craving, anger, and ignorance. And what the Buddha is saying is, okay, when you essentially have contact with other beings, then there's this harm, right? There's this harm that occurs because of craving, anger, and ignorance. As long as there's craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, there's going to be harmful decisions, unwise decisions. And then he's talking about this personal existence view, this fetter, or this taint, or this pollution. He's describing it here as a disease, which is the thought or the misperception or the false belief or misunderstanding or confusion that this physical body or this mind is who you are as a person. Some people refer to the Buddha like a doctor, that he saw these problems or these diseases, and then his teachings are the prescription to eliminate this pollution of the mind. So he's saying, you know, coming in contact with each other with craving, anger, and ignorance, and having this harm that's being inflicted on each other, and because of this disease of the self, it's causing all these complications. And then he goes through more and more and more. And as I mentioned, I explain each individual one of these because there's a lot of deep meaning behind each one of these. But eventually he gets to the point where he talks about one who's liberated through essentially eliminating craving and desire. There's no further existence, meaning you're no longer going to exist in the cycle of rebirth. Because if there's craving in the mind at the time of death, 
there's going to be rebirth. But if you've extinguished craving prior to death or at death, then there's no more existence because there's no more fuel that's causing rebirth and the mind is actually enlightened. So saying that there's no more existence in the cycle of rebirth is very different than saying there's no more existence whatsoever. So the Buddha never said there's no more existence whatsoever. He left it as an undeclared teaching. Once somebody gets to enlightenment and dies, what happens next is an undeclared teaching. You need to get to a point where you let go and you're not concerned, you're not worried, you're not desiring, you're not craving, you're not longing to know what's next, that you just understand that, okay, my life is in this life. Let me apply time, effort, energy, and resources to be dedicated, determined, and diligent to learning, practicing, to get to enlightenment in this life. And having done so, then the mind will be completely peaceful. If there's something next, okay, great. It's either as good as what you're experiencing now as enlightenment or better. And if there isn't something after enlightenment, okay, then so be it. Then you've gotten to enlightenment in this life and your mind's completely peaceful. So here he's saying that you know, there's no further existence in the cycle of rebirth, that somebody has essentially won the battle and they've gone beyond existence. So sometimes what people might share with you, depending on where you study, is they might say the goal of the path to enlightenment is to be reborn. But the more you study the words of the Buddha, you'll see that that's not true. The goal is to get to enlightenment and escape the cycle of rebirth. And then you also might see people that might say, once you get to enlightenment, you will no longer exist after that. But that's not true either. The Buddha didn't teach that. He left it as an undeclared teaching. So existing in the cycle of rebirth is undesirable. Being in non-existence in terms of getting to enlightenment and then not existing afterwards, this is an undeclared teaching. So if somebody doesn't get to enlightenment in this life, we know that there's going to be rebirth. If somebody does get to enlightenment, then there isn't going to be a rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. But what comes next is an undeclared teaching. And the Buddha makes this clear in a number of his teachings when you look at them in totality. And he's alluding to some of those things here in this particular teaching. But if you read through point by point what I've written, uh, then if you have questions, let me know. If you've already read this and you have questions, feel free to ask those now if you like. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys for any questions that you may or may not have. It does not appear we have any questions at this time, sir. All right. So that brings us to the end of volume 11, which this is the biggest book in the entire book series. It took us, what, uh, something like five months, you know, to, to go through this entire book of the cycle of rebirth, or at least four months anyway. The next book that we're going to be studying is volume 12. It's titled Lowly Arts. This is where a lot of these teachings are directed towards the ordained practitioners, where the Buddha is essentially giving them guidance of things that are what's considered lowly arts or dark arts, like mind reading and fortune telling and blessing land and blessing houses and things like this. And he's saying these are things that he doesn't do. And he encourages and advises his students to not do these things either. And he, I can explain to you when we get into those chapters why he's chosen to share this in this way. So this is going to be completely different content than what we've been studying over the last four months or five months. It's going to be a completely different direction where so far over the last 
little bit with this volume 11. We've been studying these five realms and then some teachings related to enlightenment itself. And perhaps now you have a deeper understanding of the cycle of rebirth, but maybe at this point you don't understand at all. And that's okay. That's completely fine. Each time as you're learning more and more, you get deeper and deeper into understanding something like the cycle of rebirth. And you can ask questions on this at any time that you like. But starting next week, we're going to go into volume 12, chapters 1 through chapters 10. You're welcome to read those ahead of class. And then you might be more prepared to come into class and you might have questions about certain things that the Buddha said or certain things that I shared in the explanation. Remember, there's the reference there to go back and look at the original source. That's an option as well. And then tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in chapter 23 of volume 1. Chapter 23 is symbolism in the teachings, reminders through imagery. This is where I'm going to help you to understand the different symbols like the Dhamma wheel, the symbol for enlightenment, uh, talk about different things that you're going to see in Buddhist art and architecture and Buddhist culture, things that are going to remind you about the teachings. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, as you probably are aware, the teachings were oral. They didn't write them down during his life. So we use symbols in order to remind people of his teachings. And once they understood his teachings, they could see the symbol and then it would remind them of his teachings. And now that in the group learning program, I've gone through and taught the content that I've taught, this is a great time to then be able to share the symbols that are used during the lifetime of the Buddha because those symbols are largely still used today. So when you see Buddhist art and you go into Buddhist temples, you'll be able to kind of decipher and decode what these symbols are and helps bring the teachings into the mind and helps you to better retain them so that then you can actually practice them in daily life. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together as a group. So you're welcome and invited to attend that as well. So thank you for your consistent learning and your development on the path. As you see, this cycle of rebirth is very detailed. It's the thickest book, although all the other teachings, if you put them together, there's a lot more content there. Remember, the Buddha never used the cycle of rebirth to guilt, shame, or fear people into learning his teachings. It's there to help you understand what is truly happening and what is happening and what it has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. Not as a way of guilt, shaming, or fearing people, but helps us to understand. And we have that motivation to understanding the cycle of rebirth. And we understand that if we don't get to enlightenment in this life, any wisdom that you cultivate is going to help you in future lives. That's one of the other motivations that can come out of the cycle of rebirth. But the ultimate goal would be to get to enlightenment in this life. That's why the cycle of rebirth can be set aside, because what happened in the past, it's in the past. You're already in this human life. This is your present life. What may or may not happen in the future, it's in the future. So while you can study and you can learn and you can definitely get as much detail and content of the cycle of rebirth as you like, as you ask questions, I'll share that with you. What I really encourage people to do is really focus on the core path because that's where you're going to get the benefits of awakening to enlightenment and seeing the improvement to the condition of the mind where discontentedness has significantly diminished and ultimately gets eliminated. So thank you all for studying. We'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.